Good morning. I feel kind of like an introduction is in order. Uh, my name's Brandon Williams, and uh, I feel like I've been gone forever. Um, I have been away from here the last four out of five weeks, and uh, I was on vacation one of those weeks, but before that I was in Dublin. Last week I was in Millen. Um, had a chance to preach at those campuses, so it's been good. I've missed being here um, a lot, and so I'm glad uh, to be back. And I was so nervous this morning. I don't know. It's like I'm for, for the first time I'm, I'm back here preaching or something. It's kind of weird. But I'm glad to be here and excited to be here and looking forward uh, to just opening the Word of God with you and being able to share in this time this morning. Um, we're going to continue uh, going through our 412 readings, and, and now we're really going to be looking at um, Acts chapters 1 and 2 is where the readings have been a lot in the last week or so. But I really want to start in John 13. And we're going to read quite a bit of scripture up front. And then I want to drop back and begin to talk about some of these texts that we're going to read and be able to um, look at those and see what's, what God is showing us through these different uh, scriptures. And so John 13, I want to uh, begin in verse 34. Um, in John 13, Jesus is uh, telling the disciples that uh, he's going to die, he's going away, that um, he's uh, going to leave them um, and they can't come where he's going now, but later they will. And so Jesus is giving them uh, some sort of final words before the crucifixion takes place. And so in John 13, 34, it says this, Jesus tells the disciples, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Or over to John chapter 21 now, if you flip over uh, to John 21. Uh, this is coming on the heels of the resurrection. Jesus has now been raised. Um, we're going to read where uh, Peter and Jesus are having a conversation after the resurrection. If you remember earlier, uh, Peter had promised Jesus that he would die with him, and he ends up denying him three times, which Jesus had predicted. And when he uh, denied him three times, the rooster crowed. He remembered that. He was grieved uh, because of that. Now, now we see where Jesus is speaking with Peter after the resurrection, after uh, they have a miraculous catch of fish and Jesus appears to them on the beach and um, he comes to them and begins to speak with them. And now he's beginning to speak specifically with Peter. And so it says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. 
Now let's jump to Acts chapter one, um, right there, same area. So just the, the next uh, book of the Bible. And this is the Dr. Luke um, writing about the, the works of the spirit that are beginning to happen after Jesus has ascended to heaven. It says in Acts one, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now over one more chapter to Acts 2, there's a lot of stuff in between there, but I want to focus here on Acts 2, 1 through 4. So Jesus has promised the coming of the Holy Spirit, that his spirit would come to them and then they would be his witnesses. They would receive power. And it says in Acts 2, 1, it says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Jump over a few verses to verse 40. Peter stands up after the filling of the Spirit. He preaches a message and shows the Jewish people who were there um, how Jesus fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament. And it says in verse 40, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. All right, now flip a few books over, just go through Acts, go through Romans. You come to 1 Corinthians, I'm gonna read a very popular uh, section of scripture here. And if you haven't been in church, but you've been to a wedding, chances are you've heard these verses, right? Verse uh, one in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith, a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. One more passage of scripture, go through 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, come into Galatians chapter five. 
Paul is writing here about the gospel. He's encouraging these believers in Galatia not to begin to try to work for salvation or work to maintain salvation. He's talking to them about circumcision because some of the Jewish people are telling them to be saved. You have to have faith, but also be circumcised. And so in verse four, Peter write, or Paul writes this, I'm sorry. Um, it says in verse four, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace for through the spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And so let's pray, and then we'll jump into these, these texts. Lord, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you, God, for what you've done for us. God, what you've done in us, Lord. God, I really, I just pray, Lord, that this isn't just uh, another time that we're just together, but God, we would be awakened to your presence here. God, that you'd move in our hearts, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would say to us today. Reveal yourself in truth today, Lord. Break down the strongholds in our mind that have caused us to see you differently, to see ourselves differently, to see others differently. Give us clarity to see God and give us uh, the clarity of purpose to, God, become who you created us to become and then to Fill the earth with the glory that you've got given through Jesus. We love you, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you look back there at John chapter 13, Jesus gives a really clear command, and it is that we would love each other. Um, and he tells us in that, that in loving uh, each other, people will know that we are his disciples. Um, Last week, and I got a chance, as I said, to speak in Millen. Um, I went up there and preached, and uh, I used an example to start the message that I've used here before, um, and it's about a time when I played golf. One of the things I realized at our Millen campus, and I didn't even think about this until after they raised their hands, I asked, who in here plays golf? Well, one person, I think, raised their hand. So nobody plays golf in Millen. So I was like, well, this is going to go over really well, right? And so um, I began to tell them a story, and I've shared it here before, but it was about a time when I was playing golf. And uh, I don't know if you play, if you've ever played, but there's a, a thing that happens sometimes to people as they play golf, and it's called getting the shanks. Anybody ever play golf and you got the shanks, right? It sounds like you've got some kind of like disease or something, but it's really when you swing and hit the golf ball and it just shoots almost dead right. And it's one of the most frustrating things you can experience because when you, you're doing this, you don't really know what's causing it. You really don't even know how to stop it. And one day when I was playing with my brother-in-law, this happened to me. And for about six or seven holes, everything I hit, it was just dead right. Now, I wasn't a great golfer, but normally I could at least hit it in the general direction, right? And so this thing is just like a scud missile every time, just shooting off to the right, shooting off to the right. We were on a par three. An older man was walking down the right side of the fairway. Um, I was about to tee off, and my brother-in-law said, sir, you might want to look out. And he goes, he, you know, he could tell he was kind of hard to hear. He said, what? 
He said, you might want to look out. And he said, why? He said, you'll see. And so I swing, and I mean, I'm doing everything in my power to try not to hit this ball that way. As soon as I hit it, it's like a missile right over his head. It goes, and you know, we were playing in Florida, and they've got a lot of the screens over the pools. It hits one of the screens, and the guy's kind of like this and just kind of keeps walking, you know. And, and uh, everything I was trying to do, I was trying to hit it the right way, but I couldn't really do anything about it. It was frustrating. I couldn't fix it. It was, it was one of the most frustrating things. It's one reason I quit playing golf off is because I can go get frustrated without it costing me 50 or 60 bucks, right? I can just go to Walmart if I want to get frustrated. And so I don't play golf anymore. And so, um, but this day I shanked it. And I was thinking about that with those, uh, with this message uh, with them last week. And I took some of it out of this same passage. Um, and, and the thing that hit me though is how has the church shanked this so bad, Right? How have we shanked this so badly? It's like Jesus teed it up really well, teed it up high. He made it really simple. And then the church just went, right? And we've made it about so many other things. And yet he made it so plain. Even in Matthew 22, he tells us that the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. He makes it so simple. He makes it about knowing him, about being loved by him, being loved by him, and then the ability to love others. And yet somehow the church and, and we as individuals have, have allowed it to become something that it was never intended to be. And so we've lost the focus on him and the relationship and so in in time over time it's like we just shanked it and so God wanted us to go that way we've kind of gone this way and over time it seems like it's just been more and more ingrained that it's more about doing than it is about knowing it's Christianity and church and relationships which we don't really even have time for anymore it becomes all about, I got to do this. It's just another thing to do. And we miss the point. And Jesus made it so simple. He said, love, love. You get over to John 21, where we read about Peter. And I wanted to write this up here just so that you can see it. Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? When he's asking him this, he uses some different words. And he says this, he says, Peter, do you love me? And the first time he uses that, he uses a word, it's actually in the verb form, which you don't care about, um, called agape, okay? It's an unconditional love. It's a love that um, describes God's love. It ultimately ended up becoming very much a Christian word synonymous with the unconditional love of God. The second time that Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? He uses the word agape again. And so he says, Peter, do you love me? The first time he tells him, he says, um, yes, Lord, this is Peter's answer. He says, then feed my sheep or feed my lambs. The next time he says, take care of my sheep. It says, then Jesus asked him a third time. When Jesus says this, he uses a word called phileo. It's a word that would be more of what we kind of understand about love with maybe um, friends. It's a very fondness of someone. I really like them a lot. I enjoy being around them. And so Jesus uses this different word. When Peter answers, 
the first time, the second time, and the third time, he uses the same word, phileo. You can't read that, but you get the point. One starts with a P, one starts with a A. All right, and so he uses this word. So Jesus says, Peter, do you love me unconditionally? Do you love me in this way? Peter responds with, yes, Lord. He said, you know that I love you. And so Jesus says, do you agape me? Peter says, yes, I phileo you. Um, then it comes again. Jesus says, do you agape me? Peter says, Lord, you know all things. I phileo you. And then Jesus says, do you phileo me? And Peter says, Lord, you know all things. It says that he was grieved. Now, why was he grieved? And here's where different people are going to differ on this. Some say that these words in this verse are used synonymously. Um, and so you can't really draw a difference between the use of agape and phileo. Regardless of that, what I want you to see in this is that Jesus is asking Peter about his love for himself, for Jesus. He's saying, Peter, do you love me? And then it says that Peter was grieved. Why was Peter grieved? This is a question I wrestled with some this week is what grieved Peter about this? I believe that what grieved him was not just that Jesus asked him three times. I mean, there's, I don't think there's anything magical about the number three when he asked him three times. It'd be like me saying, hey, do you love me? And then you're like, yeah, I love you. You love me. Yeah, I love you. Well, do you, are you fond of me? And then we go, <laughs> you're like, right, you get all upset. It wasn't something to do with like the number three. I believe what happens is in this, Jesus is asking these questions. And then Peter realizes that he didn't have what Jesus had for him. Does that make sense? He's in this place where Jesus is saying, do you love me? He even asked Peter, he says, do you love me more than these? Now there's two possibilities. These could represent the other disciples sitting around or it could represent the fish. People fight over that. No, it was the fish. No, it was other disciples. I don't think it really matters that much which one it was and we don't need to fight over it. What we need to see in all of this is that Peter or Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, do you have a love for me that would cause you to lay down your life for me as I laid down my life for you? Peter, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these other disciples? In other words, is this relationship between you and I, is it greater than what you have for other people? Is this relationship between you and I, is it greater than the fish and your profession and your old way of life? Is the love that you have for me, is it the same as I have for you so that you would literally be willing to die because of the love you have for me? Jesus said that there's no greater love than for a man to lay down his life for his friends. He demonstrated that love. And now I really believe this, that Peter is seeing he wants me to feed his sheep. He wants me to love him the way he loves me. He wants me to be able to love his church, his people, to feed them with the truth and the, the word of God to care for them. He's wanting me to do this, but this is what I think Peter sees. I don't have this. 
I, and, and here's the thing, y'all. Not only does he not possess this, he can't produce it. He can't produce it. Peter's denied him three times. It wasn't that Peter was trying to lie when he said, I will die with you. It was that Peter felt in his heart, this is what I'm willing to do. He even struck the, the, the servant with his sword when they came to arrest Jesus, cutting off his ear. But then we see that when he got arrested, they all scattered. And Peter realized, I don't have what I thought I had. I don't have what I need. I don't possess what Jesus is asking me and I can't even produce it so that I can have it. And so when we look at that, it's a huge deal for us because I feel like this, we've got to ask ourselves the same question. I have to ask myself this question. Do I have a love for Jesus, a love that is so great because I've seen who he is, because I've recognized my own sinfulness. I've seen what Jesus has done for me. Now I see who I've become in him. I've been made right with God. Do I have a love for Jesus because of those things that I recognize and that causes me to come to a place of being willing to lay down my life for him. See, in church, and Jesus even says it here, we tell people, follow him, follow him, follow him. But if we have not received and are not receiving the love of God, we have not tasted that he is good. We don't have a hunger for him because it's the craziest thing. You can be completely satisfied in Christ and yet have a hunger for more. And if we haven't tasted, if we don't have a hunger, then the thing that makes no sense to people is why would I die? Why would I lay down my life to follow him? It makes no sense. And so the church oftentimes gets frustrated with people. We hate the ones we're called to love because we feel like we're trying to take them places they don't want to go. But what we have to realize is that in our lives, there are times when we aren't motivated by God's love. We get away from that. But then we see this. We see later in life that Peter died a martyr's death, I meaning he died for the sake of Christ. He died because of his faith. He ended up, it's like Jesus is telling him, he is telling him in the last part of the verses we read in 21, he's telling him basically the type of death he's going to die. Tradition tells us that Peter ended up being crucified upside down. At his request, he was crucified upside down because he didn't deem himself worthy to die the way that Jesus died. That's an incredible difference from the man we see who denied Jesus three times, who's hurt because he realizes, I don't, I, I can't do this. I can't produce this. And yet he ends up giving his life when we read in Acts chapter two, verses 40 through 47, we see the early church. They're, 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 people are coming to know Christ. There's a boldness in their witness. There's a love for each other. There's a love for God and his word. They devoted themselves to teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship with each other. They devoted themselves to prayer. They devoted themselves to breaking bread, to, to, to taking communion and sharing meals and fellowship together. 
They were a part of all of this together. There was a unity and there was something about them that was divine because the one who is divine was working in them. You go to 1 Corinthians 13 that we read. We have totally lost this chapter because we only use it at weddings, right? I mean, as soon as we hear that, we think about a wedding. We think about somebody getting married. And, and I preached a lot of weddings where I use those verses, great verses, so true for weddings. But they also have meaning outside of a wedding. In fact, if you look at it in between or in, in, on the opposite sides of chapter 13 and 12 and 14, obviously, are two chapters on the gifts of the spirit and knowledge. And he's telling these Corinthian believers who were so consumed with the gifts of the spirit, he's saying, look, if you have all the gifts, if you have all the wisdom, if you have all the knowledge, if you speak in tongues of angels, if you give your body over to death, if you do all of these things, but there's no love in your heart, then it has no purpose, meaning, or produces nothing. He says we gain nothing. And so if we don't have this, Everything that we do is still empty and powerless. So we see that this is important. You go to Galatians 5 and Paul tells us again at the end of verse 6 that the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And so we see how important this is that we can receive God's love, that we can walk in his love that we can share his love. It is crucial, but we've made it a minor thing in the church. We'd rather talk about the mysteries and the knowledge rather than allowing the gospel to transform our hearts so that we then can love others like Jesus does. And, and we've made love soft. It's become this thing that's soft. It's like, it's all you know, just kind of touchy-feely and it's, it's, you know, we think of it kind of as, as girly and, and, and kind of sissy to talk about love. But I would ask you, if you go and look at love defined in scripture, the agape love of God, was it a weak, sissy love? Absolutely not. It was a love that gave victory over Satan, hell, death, and the grave. And it overcame all the powers and principalities in the world as love sent Jesus to us. Love sent Jesus to the cross love sent Jesus in a tomb the father's love for the son raised him to life he ascended to heaven so that the Holy Spirit could come ensuring in us the love of God sealing us until the day of redemption so that the love of God is in our hearts so that we cry out Abba father and we love him with our hearts now because God has given us a new heart through the power of the spirit we've tasted we've seen we hunger for more we can 
continue to draw near because I want more of what he gives. I want more of who he is. I want to see more clearly what he's done. I'm tired of talking about dead doctrine that doesn't lead to life. I'm tired of going through the motions of doing things that don't help me become more like Christ. I'm tired of doing empty actions that don't lead to any fruit. What I really need is just to crawl into the lap of my heavenly father to recognize the love that he has for me so that then I can go and begin to share that love and and, and begin to live in a place where when Jesus says, do you love me? We just say yes. And when we say yes, it's listen, even the love that we begin to have for Jesus comes from God. It's not what we can produce. Peter couldn't produce this. Yet we see Peter leading the church later in this. Peter wasn't perfect. In Galatians 2, Paul rebukes him for not wanting to eat with the non-Jewish people. But he got it. He, He began to see it. He wasn't perfected in it, but he began to see it. He saw differently. So what keeps us from walking in this, from receiving this? from sharing this. I believe this, y'all. I believe this with all my heart and I believe that this is one of the things that we see so clearly in scripture that the reason oftentimes we can't walk in God's love is because we don't walk in God's truth. And I wanna show you something. This is the only other thing I'm gonna draw. So if you look at this, on a spectrum, basically what I want you to see is that on one hand, there is feelings. On the other end of that, there's logic. And we're all in different places on this spectrum. So think about this. Do you typically react to things more emotionally or do you typically react to things more logically? Like the logical person's kind of the calm in the storm, right? And then the person that is more emotional, more feelings is kind of the chaos in the storm, right? And and I'm not saying one's better than the other. I probably fall somewhere about right there. So that uh, I I feel things, right? I I, kind of have a, a tendency to react emotionally to things. I've got a lot of buddies who are very logical, so, so look, if, if you put yourself on this spectrum, look, it's not right or wrong. How many of you would say you respond more in feelings emotionally, right? Yeah. How about this? How many of you would say I'm more logical? Like you can be in a situation that everybody else is like, oh my gosh. And you're like, well, we need to do A, B, C, and D. <laughs> everybody else is like, but don't you see? And you're like, I don't feel things. So let's just do this right? And so that's kind of how we can find ourselves is along those lines. Now, listen, I'm not telling you that, that, that we don't have feelings when we encounter God. We do. I'm not telling you that you have to check your mind at the door to be in a relationship with God. No, the, the, look, the, the relationship with God is both emotional and it's logical, Christianity is the one religion that if you really begin to see how it connects from Genesis to Revelation, you go, hey, that kind of makes sense. 
And so you see that. So it's not that feelings or logic are bad in and of themselves. What I want you to see is they are bad or they are good based off of where they are derived or where they come from. Okay, everybody still with me? So that when we see this, most of the time in our lives, most of the time in our lives, what drives our feelings, what creates our logic is experience. So how I feel things, how I see things, how I process things, how I feel, how I think, how I respond to my feelings, how I lean on my logic, typically both of those are created by my experience. My experience begins to shape these. The problem for us is this, in the world, most of the time, the experience we have do not reinforce the truths of God's word. So I want you to see this, that experience apart from God's truth is a very dangerous thing. Experience apart from God's truth has the ability to lie to us experience apart from God's truth, it begins to shape our feelings and our logic, how we respond, what we think. It begins to create these feelings and logic, listen, that then begin to create assumptions about what is true. Isn't that right? So we begin to experience things. Those experiences then begin to cause us to make assumptions about what's true in my life, shaping how I respond to things, shaping how I think about things. And so everything begins to be shaped by my experience and what I've been told in the world. What we have to see is then those assumptions about the truth then lead us to incorrect ways of thinking and even feeling. So that now I've made an assumption of what's true based off of an experience. And now that assumption of what's true is making me think incorrectly about life. And this is what I can tell you. Thinking incorrectly, not in accord with God's word and his truth will always lead us to a life of destruction. Did anybody follow that? So that truth or experience apart from truth is dangerous because it begins to define how we think. It begins to define how I respond to things, even how I feel. So experience teaches me what to believe. And, and I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this. That what we believe will determine what we are willing to receive. What we believe will ultimately determine what we are willing to receive. So that I've, my belief system is based off of my experience. It's going to determine what I see as true. If I see it as true, then I'm willing to receive what it tells me. 
So that when I look at that and, and my experience has taught me that a man is a guy who tries to sleep with everything with two legs and, and that, that marriage is bad and it can't be good, it can't get better over time, it teaches me that I'm a piece of crap because everybody's always told me I'm a piece of crap. It teaches me that I shouldn't like white people or I shouldn't like black people or I shouldn't like people who have less money than me or more money than me or who don't like to hunt or don't like to play golf or don't like to shop, don't like to buy shoes and so we we see where experience begins to shape all of that all of my belief is going to create what I'm willing to receive as true what I'm willing to receive as true is going to shape everything that I think and what I think is going to make my decisions and what makes my decisions is going to determine the life that I live and so when we see this most of our thinking is driven by experience not truth what we have to do y'all listen what we have to do we have to bring our experience into the truth so that our truth defines the experience not the other way around so that we see God's word and we see the truth and when the truth begins to define my life it begins to define who God is, who I am, who others are, my purpose for existence that is greater than having a nice house, two cars, and 2.5 kids. Then I begin to see differently. I begin to think differently. But the truth has to define our experience. When something tragic comes, oftentimes we see that we see God through the tragedy we don't see the tragedy through the lens of God we see we see things in our life in our experience that shape the way we see God we see that through that lens rather than seeing everything through his truth rather than letting the truth define God we define him by what we've experienced same thing with us same thing with others and the problem in that comes because in everything we experience, the way we know we succeed is by what I do. But the way that we're going to receive and possess and produce the love that Peter realizes I don't have, the way we're going to do that is not by what I do. It's going to be when my belief lines up with God's truth so that I can receive what God wants to give me. So I'm either going to receive what the world says and it becomes my truth or I'm going to receive and trust and believe in God's truth so it begins to lead me in the right way so that I begin to produce the love, the life of God. The one scripture I skipped over was Acts 2, 1 through 4 because when you look at Acts 2, 1 through 4, it's the day of Pentecost. It's the coming of the Holy Spirit. I want you to see that, that that's the game changer. That's the difference maker. These people went from scared, from held up in a little room, to being completely bold, to being willing to die, and yet loving the ones who were killing them. How do you do that? I can't produce that but the spirit in me can. The spirit in me, listen, do you believe that God and the Holy Spirit 
is big enough to do what you think is impossible in your life. Then the key is to receive him. The key is to walk in him. See, the Holy Spirit isn't a thing. It's not a it, it's a he, he's God. It's to receive him, it's to walk in him, it's to share him, it's to continually be filled with him. And that is the game changer. But here's the thing, the question then becomes, how do I receive him? Well, you receive him at salvation. You receive him at salvation. You are filled with the spirit of God. God gives you his spirit at salvation. How are we saved? By faith. Salvation by faith. Well, how am I continually filled with him? The same believers who were filled in Acts 2 are filled in Acts 4. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, 18, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. When we look at that, how do, how do I stay filled up with him? How do I do this? And by faith, by belief, by trust in his truth. And then I look at it and I go, well, well, how do I walk in him? How do I, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? You believe. And see, here's what we have to do. I believe in John 21, that as Peter is looking at this, he's sitting on the beach with a man he saw as dead. He realizes more than ever, he realizes who Jesus is. There is greater clarity that comes because of who Jesus is. He also has greater clarity of his inadequacy. Remember, he can't possess this. He doesn't possess this and he can't produce this. And so he realizes I am completely inadequate in my love for God, in my love for people, in my ability to do what God's called me to do. But then he has even a greater clarity of Jesus's love for him. Jesus is talking, he's fellowshipping, he's loving on them. And yet Peter just denied him, they all scattered. Who comes back after that? Who comes back to you after you betray them? Jesus. He recognizes greater clarity around Jesus's love for him. And he realized again, I don't possess it. I can't produce it. And guys, listen, girls, listen, people. We've got to come to the same place of seeing those things. See, God's commands to love shouldn't frustrate us and leave us exasperated. It should drive us once again to the feet of Jesus because we can't do it, but God can do it through us. How do we receive? And we, it begins by seeing. The Spirit opens our eyes to see clearly who Jesus is, who God is. When I see who He is, what He's done, who He's made me to become, right with Him, forgiven. The only response is humility, reverence, awe of God. And even in seeing how big He is, how holy he is. I recognize that he sees me through the lens of Christ. Thank God that he doesn't view us through the lens of our experience. But once we come to Christ, he, he sees us and views us through the lens of his truth, which is Jesus, the word made 
flesh. So we can come to Him. We can come to Him. And when I draw near, the Bible promises He draws near. We're drawing near. We promises that I'm in Him and He's in me and we're one. And I can come to Him, not just when I think I've got it together, but especially when I don't, I can come boldly before His throne of grace. I can come in reverence and awe, but I still come in humility to Him and I receive grace and mercy to help me in my time of need, which is all the time. And what I want to encourage you with today, listen. Don't allow your experience to keep you from coming to Jesus. Don't allow what you have believed because of your experience about who God is. Let the truth of who God is be seen through the lens of Jesus Christ. Don't allow your experience in who you are keep you from coming to Jesus, keep you from drawing near so that you receive the Spirit. We come by faith, not in trusting my ability, but in trusting who He is. I come to Him. I come to Him consistently, not, not, not momentarily, but moment by moment, I come to Him. Don't let your experience of church and what you've always thought about religion and all these things keep you from coming to Jesus. We receive Him by faith. We're filled by faith continually. We walk in Him by faith. It's really simple, y'all. Let's not shank this. Right? Don't miss this. If we continue to trust in what I can produce and what I can cause to happen in my life, then we make a mockery of the cross. I want to invite you today and just to be able to take a few minutes, however, whatever, a few seconds, whatever, to see clearly, to ask God to open your eyes, to ask Him to help you see who He is, to see our inability, our sin, our depravity, our humanness but to also see what he's done to see who we've become to see what he's created us to be who he's created us to be I'm going to invite you today if the Lord's putting it on your heart I'm going to ask you to come down here I'm going to ask you to get out of your seat I'm going to ask you to come down here because listen many of you are going to sit in your seat because your experience has taught you, I can't show that I need God. Experience has taught us to put up a wall that's called pride and act like I've got it all together when we know our heart is breaking. 
when we know we need him, when we know, as we sang earlier, we need him to break the chains off of our lives so that we can live the life that he's called us to live and love the way he's called us to love. And so I'm gonna ask you, listen, there's nothing magical about this area, but there is something powerful about responding to God's love. There is something powerful about stepping when God says step. There is something powerful about humbling myself in light of God's truth, in light of his grace. I'm inviting you to come and I'm inviting you to come and pray. I'm inviting you to draw near. I'm inviting you to take a physical step that represents a spiritual reality that's happening in your life. And my prayer is that when you get up and leave and you go out those doors, you don't walk out of here and this be something rare, but that you walk out of here and this is what defines your life. That wherever you are, you're at the altar. That whoever you're with, you're at the altar. You're drawing near, you're with him. So here's the thing, I'm gonna pray. I'm just, I want you to just respond to him, not to me. Look, respond to him, get your eyes on him. When I pray, you come. If you need today to take a step of faith to say, I've never received the spirit. I've never received Jesus as the savior of my life, but I need him. I'm gonna ask that our prayer team would stand to my right over here. You just go up and you talk to them. They'll help you take the next steps in your faith. I'm asking you to respond. Respond to truth, not to what you've always maybe known. God, I thank you so much for your love for us, your grace, the power of who you are, Lord. Everything in us tells us not to come, Lord, not to come to you, not to draw near to you because we, we haven't been good enough. We haven't been right enough. And yet it's only when we draw near to you that your power can work in us to create in us who you want us to be. God, let our let our understanding of you become clear through your truth. Let our understanding of ourselves become clear in your truth. Let our understanding of others and our purpose in this world become clear because of your truth. And let your truth, God, define our experience. I pray we would no longer allow our experience to define what's true. Jesus, I pray you'll continue to speak to our hearts, that we would open your word, that we would see more clearly who you are. God, we love you. We thank you, God, that we can come boldly before your throne of grace all the time. In every season, in every moment, in Jesus' name.